Good morning. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 this morning. So if you have a Bible, would you turn there or scan the QR code that will take you to our Bible app. You can follow along that way as well. Thank you for being here this morning in person as we worship together. Those joining us online and those who are in traditions and in kindred, different places, worshiping the same God, the same church. We're excited about that. <clears throat> Continuing this series, Insatiable. If you need a Bible, slip a hand up. We've got some ushers coming down the aisles with Bibles. You can borrow one this morning and join us uh, in the Word. <clears throat> Talk about a restless yearning this morning. In chapter one of Ecclesiastes in this series, we learned that time is kind of the, the great eraser and that death is the great equalizer. We also learned that there is nothing new under the sun that can satisfy us. In chapter two, we learned that there is nothing in this life outside of God that can satisfy us. Solomon, he tried it all. Power, women, alcohol, busyness, nothing worked. We have been reminded that this life is like a vapor or it's like smoke that we try to grab a hold of and we can't get a hold of it and it's hard to grasp. It's, it's a life that's hard to figure out. And that makes sense knowing how much time one spends on the questions of life. We know that there are highs and lows and joys and disappointments. We know that life is just a mystery sometimes. And without God in the equation, life can be extremely confusing and even depressing. That is the place that Solomon is in. That's the place that he's writing from. He'd abandoned God, worshiped idols, led people uh, of Israel into the worship of, of idolatry. And, and even as their king, it is a low period for both Israel and for Solomon. Now we come to chapter three. We will find ourselves standing on the corner of what we will call the big picture or our whole life and the corner of the individual pieces or the seasons of life. Imagine for a moment standing at that intersection. And what we will discover is the longer we stand there, we realize just how much we lack control in both areas both the bigger picture of life and the seasons of life. We lack the power to make anything happen. And for that reason, we ought to have hope. Well, that sounds strange, doesn't it? That's right, because our lack of control ought to be life-giving. It ought to give us freedom and fill us with tremendous hope. Who would have thought that the lack of control would give us hope? God. And here's why. We are bound by limits of time and God is not. What we think and what we do comes and it goes, but not for God. What he thinks and what he does is eternal. Both the temporal and the eternal time applies to us. What separates the, the temporal from the eternal as it relates to us is a matter of life and death. In chapter three, he uses both of those filters. There are four main themes in chapter three. Life is temporal, death is inevitable, judgment is unavoidable, and eternity is undeniable. So here we go. Number one, life is complex and it's short. Verses one through eight, and allow me to speak into these extremes of life. I want to start with the first two verses. 
There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to uproot. A time to born and a time to die, he begins. Psalm 139, 16 echoes that and teaches us, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. He wrote the entire story of your life before you took your first breath. God decides when we will be born. God decides when we will die. And God decides every single moment in between. He sustains us every moment in between. He never uses the phrase, I didn't see that coming. He never says, oops, in, re in reference to the timing of a child being born. Those are all our responses to life. Those are the things that we say. But again, keep in mind, our response to life is expressed from a place of temporal. Verses two to eight are, are these extremes of life. He begins to, with poetry, begins to paint this picture of life. And God's created world is beautiful and, it, and it's tantalizing and, and it's way too big for us. And these, these verses are gonna point out to us and remind us its ability to satisfy is way too small. And so this passage will remind us once again, we must keep in mind that we were not created for the here and the now. We were created for eternity. We were created to last forever. The things of time cannot fully satisfy us. We were never meant to be satisfied by the things that are here and limited by time. Now, verse three says this, a time to kill and a time to heal. This is not this uh, endorsement of murder because it is a strange saying. He is saying as an example in the line of duty, there are times, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Dance. Now I got all the former Baptists riled up. Don't blame me, it's, it's right here. It doesn't say you should dance, it says you can dance, it's permissible. At my last church, about nine years in, we decided to have a daddy-daughter dance. And some of you are saying, did he just say daddy-daughter dance? Yes. But you know what I just did, don't you? And maybe this isn't true or not, but I just extended our next elder board meeting. Verse five, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away. You remember last week when I talked about all of the stuff that we have and I talked about the number of storage units that we have and, and the amount of clothes that we throw away and how many toys our kids have, all the stuff. If you don't need it or if you haven't used it, throw it away, get rid of it, simplify what if every married couple did this for each other? You go through your spouse's stuff, and if you think they don't need it or haven't used it in a reasonable time, you just throw it away for them, right? I don't know that that would go so well. Verse seven, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Now this poetry may sound familiar to me. It reminds me of a song called Turn, Turn, turn by the birds. It was a song, it's kind of fascinating. It was a song written in the 50s by Pete Seeger, but it didn't become popular until the mid 60s. 
and it hit the Billboard's top 100 three weeks in a row. Why? It was because the culture of the 60s and the 70s identified with the words of Solomon written thousands of years earlier. During that season, American history, there was this countercultural revolution that was taking place. The flower children and the hippies of the 60s and the 70s. And while they were spiritual, if you've done any reading or maybe you lived during that time, while they were spiritual, most were anti-God, anti-authority, anti-establishment, and anti-war. They were all about free love, free sex, free drugs, and their mantra was peace and love. That was what was happening during that time period when that song became so popular. And the reason the song became so popular in the 60s is because the culture was in the same place as Solomon was when he penned the words of Ecclesiastes 3. They were searching and searching and searching, searching for purpose and meaning and happiness. It was a time of free living and experiment. And they identified with the words of Solomon. But here's what happened. In the midst of this counterculture experiment, there were those who began to emerge, realizing all of what they were experiencing only led to more emptiness. They ended up back at a place with the needle on empty in life. So what did emerge? Does anybody remember? The Jesus movement. Thousands upon thousands of hippies turning to Christ. They had resolved that all of this anti this and that and free this and that only reminded them again and again just how empty they were. In fact, it was was such a movement, this emerging out of this emptiness, it was such a movement, it made the cover of Time Magazine in 1971 with the title, The Jesus Revolution. It made headlines in every notable magazine and news channel. Books were written about it, expressing that the only thing the counterculture was doing was reinforcing a familiar emptiness in life. They were reinforcing this this sense or this feeling, and a revival began. If, who would be brave enough to say you lived during this time? Yeah. A revival began that was essentially spearheaded by 20-somethings of the generation. Were they unique? In some ways, yes, but in other ways, no. The thing that was not unique was that every single generation in some way spins their wheels looking for satisfaction and a meaning and meaning apart from God. Every generation does it, and we're doing it, and we're repeating it. Questioning life, seeking identity and purpose. None of a generation's experiments are new. We are on repeat. Every generation thinks that they're special in this way. We will be the ones, this will be the generation My people will be the ones who find satisfaction finally outside of God. Like they're on a quest. It has been, it always will be. I only share that because hope is only as good as our desperation. As to say a person who is not desperate to find a new way is not interested in hope. Here's what we know, hope has a name, his name is Jesus. 
What I'm about to say, I want you to hear very clearly. So what I say is not misrepresented or taken out of context. What we need in America is not the same or a different president. What we need in America is not to control the House or Senate based on your political leaning. What we need in America is not huge divisions over masks or no masks. What we need in America is not to dig in on gun control. What we need in America is not huge debates over same-sex marriage. What we need in America is not to divide over racial uh, division. What we need in America is not to defund the police. What we need in America is not to make divorce easier. What we need in America is not the legalization of drugs. What we need in America is revival. It's not to say that we shouldn't think about politics or make informed decisions, but they don't lead us to a revival. Because friends, when there is revival, our hearts are turned back to God, and when our hearts are turned back to God, God has his way in us and through us. When our hearts are pricked by God through the Holy Spirit, more and more people will realize that same-sex marriage is a sin, and killing innocent babies is not okay. The more our hearts are revived, the more we'll pursue love and unity instead of hate and division. We need revival. When you drive into a number of national parks, there is a sign often with smoky bear on it and it says this, today's fire danger is low, moderate, high, very high or extreme. You've all seen it. And a revival starts with a fire that spreads like a revival fire. Believers, what risk level are we in starting a revival fire? Because revival starts in our own hearts. Revival is to make a believer's heart live again. It is to be awakened to the truth of the gospel and to the God who satisfies. If you had a sign around your neck for everyone else to see that indicated your risk level for starting a revival fire, what would it say? Would it say low, moderate, high, very high, or extreme? Will it be a younger generation that leads the way once again? Let us be encouraged sometimes. I know we can get frustrated with one another, but let us be encouraged as we speak to young people and listen clearly and quickly realize their heart for God and their desire to stand for truth, who reject trends and culture popularities. Young people who can teach the older generations what it means to find our identity in Christ and not in what we do or what we have. They will teach us. February 12th is Student Sunday. I encourage you to make every effort to be here that day. From start to finish, it's all led by students and it's always an encouragement to be led in singing and from the word by our junior and senior hires. There is a time and a season for everything. These things are cyclical. 14 pairs of extremes Solomon is speaking of. They are both constructive and destructive. They are a list of polarities. Life is a cycle of events and it's a full circle, he's saying. And it goes round and round and round. What does he conclude or realize? 
time is in God's hands. Whatever time or season of life that you are in, enjoy it. Life is complex and short. All we have the power to do is measure time and mark time. Time is not dependent on any person or event. It just keeps moving. Vince Lombardi once said this, I have never lost a game. I just ran out of time. Don't rush the next season. Like me, you've probably, I found myself saying, I can't wait until blank. And then it turns to, I wish I had more time. Teenagers have this tendency to rush time. I can't wait till I drive. I can't wait till I date. I can't wait till I'm out of the house. And then when you're out of the house, boy, I sure do miss home. It was so easy back there. And right now parents are like, listen to pastor. We're all going to run out of time. And none of us know when. I pray that these first eight verses awaken in us this reevaluation of life. Life is complex and it's short. Eternity is simple and it's forever. Verses nine through 22, beginning in verse nine. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat, drink, and find satisfaction in all of their toil. This is the gift of God. When we live ignorant of God's plan, we live unsure of lasting significance. The things in life that bring the most satisfaction are the things that are given to us from the very hand of God. And what does he conclude here? That whatever enjoyment we have in this life is a gift from God. If we eat and drink and find any satisfaction from anything that we do, it's from God. Knowing that this life is limited, that it's restricted, and it's confined by time, we can only, as children of God, find meaning in this life when we cheerfully accept it from the hand of God and stop trying to find it ourselves. That's his point here. Look at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also said eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And, verse 14, I know that everything God does <clears throat> will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken away. God does it so that people will fear him. Right there is the source for our emptiness our longing and our dissatisfaction and our disappointment and our lacking. 
Do you see it in verse 11? I wanna read it again. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning till the end. We have this restless yearning that will never be fully met, that will never be satisfied this side of eternity. We, we live in the here and now with samples of what his kingdom will be like. We get to taste what satisfaction might be like. We get to sample what, what purpose and meaning might be like. But one day, friends, we will get to live the fullest. Continue on to verse 15. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of an animal goes down to the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Between the temporal and the eternal, there's judgment. Verse 17, he said, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. We can only, um, I think we can only survive the injustices of this world when we look to and find hope in God's true and promised judgment. When we lose sight of his promised judgment, it makes sense then, when we don't have that perspective in mind that there is coming a day that our king will judge. When we lose sight of that, we find ourselves filled with disappointment and anger and rage and unforgiveness. That makes sense. All of which can imprison and even destroy our inside self. But while we wait for God's judgment and for him to make right what was wrong, let us find our hope in what he can do, what he will do, instead of what we want to do. Because the full counsel of God is to know that God is love and just. He is just because he loves. And he is love because he's just. You cannot separate the two. We cannot have a God who is one and not the other. His judgment is coming. And while his love is eternal, his judgment will end at the final judgment. You might remember, um, I've done messages on this before, but as believers, if you're a child of God, that when you die, you will stand before 
people pronounce it three different ways, Bema, Bema, and Bama, however you wanna say it. There's a judgment seat that all believers will stand before. And it's not a judgment seat to determine whether or not uh, where you go for all eternity and whether or not you're a child of God. So it's a judgment seat, or you might think of it as a reward seat where he gives you your rewards according to how you live this life. Unbelievers will stand before God in the great white throne judgment seat. And in his hand will be this Lamb's book of life. For everyone whose name is not written in the book of life, they will be cast into the lake of fire. The judgment for the injustices of this life are held for God and can be trusted. Verse 18, man on his own is as mortal as an animal. Unlike an animal, however, our eyes can be open to, to such a condition only in the light of eternity. If we live our lives limited by the space and the time and the here and now, we live no different than the animals. Remember the perspective that Solomon is writing from. We're just like the animals, he's saying, who possess no soul, or hope of eternal life. Animals are not depraved and in need of a savior. We, on the other hand, are absolutely depraved from the moment that we are born and we need a savior. We need an eternal perspective to see our need. An animal lives with no such perspective. What I'm saying has nothing to do with whether my Lucy and Bailey will be in heaven. We've covered that in the heaven series, right? Some days I think, yes, they'll be there. Other days, not so much. You have animals too. Verse 20, this book reminds us time again that death is the great equalizer. And we are seeing here that not only does that apply to humans, but also to all created things, including animals. All go to the same place. He's not referring to the eternal destination of heaven and hell. He's referring to man's reduced image of physical death itself the dust of the earth, to say we are no different than the animals in that manner. Verse 21, who knows? He's not saying it cannot be known. Rather that man on his own without the truth and the hope of God, we cannot possibly know. It requires us to know God and the deep things of God and his promises. But again, remember, Solomon is looking at life from a perspective limited by time and knowledge. Verse 22. Work is meaningless, as mentioned in previous chapters. He said this time and time again. When we see it as a means to an end, if your work is a means to just get you somewhere, if your work is just a means to make enough money to pay the bills or to buy something new, or to find purpose and meaning, only when we see work as a gift from God will it ever have worth greater than the limited satisfaction and resources that it can provide. Here's one thing. The complexity of life reminds us of our absence of control. And the simplicity of eternity reminds us of our hope.
God is trying to redirect our attention here from the temporal to the eternal. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the gift of wisdom in your word. Uh, thank you for Solomon's words today. And as we've taken this time uh, to celebrate your death, burial, and resurrection, Lord, help us to number our days rightly and help us to think about what is our primary purpose. And help us to consider our lives in the light of who you are and what you've done and rejoice in how good you are to us. We pray this in your name. Amen.